All right, we're in this last chapter of Acts. I say the last chapter because it's the last one that we're going to look at this spring. We're going to transition next week into 1 John, and we're going to go through 1 John through this summer. But we're in Acts today, and this is a turning point in Acts, and I want you to see it. I want us to look at it together. And I want you to think how important this is for us and for the church that this is the last passage that we look at in the book of Acts. The question is, what do you do with tyrants in your life? What do you do with those people who are oppressive and cruel in their rule and their governance over you? Where do you experience tyrants in your life? And what I want you to see is that Jesus is explaining to the church what he does with tyrants. I want you to see that this section of Acts is the turning point in Acts. From here on out, we don't see Peter and the other apostles um, in these scenarios where they preach and they teach and more people come to faith. Rather, it turns from chapter 12. And if you want to keep reading this year in 13, you're going to see that the missionary journeys of the church began right after this sequence. And I want you to think that this passage is about this simple statement. As king, Jesus sets his church free from tyranny that we might bear witness to him. That's what I think that this passage is about. As king, Jesus sets his church free from tyranny that we might bear witness to him. Children, what's a tyrant? You may think, I've got two of them at home, and I, I want to tell you, you don't have two of them at home, okay? You, you all are blessed with incredibly loving parents. A tyrant is one who rules with oppression and cruelty, enforces their own authority. And here we have a tyrant that threatens the life of the church. Herod, right? I want you to see that in this first section, under the power of a tyrant, Powerless people pray. That's what this first section is about, verses 1 through 5, all right? And I want you to see how Herod is a tyrant. We read in the very first verse, and again, you're on page 920 of those blue pew Bibles. We see in the very first verse that Herod lays violent hands onto the church. And if bells go off in your head and you say, haven't we studied this already? You would go, oh yeah. The similar things were said of Saul before Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, starting in chapter 7, but 8 and 9, particularly chapter 9 where his conversion takes place, that there we see that like Saul, Herod lays violent hands on the church. In verses 2 and 3, we hear that he kills James. James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, right? Remember these guys, the sons of thunder, the ones that went to Jesus and said, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left. And Jesus says, not mine to offer, but what I am going to tell you is that you'll drink from the same cup that I drink. And here we see that James is killed by the sword of Herod. And we see that Herod also arrests Peter. And you see that he surrounds Peter with these four sets of guards. In other words, he's saying, this time, Peter, you're not escaping. Because you've seen that we've already seen that Peter has escaped when he's been put in prison before. But Herod says, no, 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 no. Not this time. And then in verse 3, I want you to see the first thing that ought to alert you and me to a tyrant. Read verse 3 with me. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
Now remember, when we say that when he saw that it pleased the Jews, we mean the Jewish leaders here. But it says that when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, and I want you to put a note there in your mind. First mark of a tyrant. Using power and even politics to please other people for himself, right? This Herod is Herod Agrippa, the third of three Herods that have been mentioned in the Gospels thus far. Herod the Great was the first one of the Herodian dynasty who happened to be the one who, when announced by the wise men that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, declared that all of the children, all of the male children, two years and under, be put to death in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. This is this guy's grandfather. You've heard of another Herod too, Herod Antipas, this guy's uncle. And you remember the violence with which he treated the church, how he beheaded John the Baptist at the behest of his wife's daughter, and then how he mocked Jesus, dressing him up in robes, and with his soldiers mocked his face. And now this, his nephew, Herod Agrippa, has his turn to crush the church. And the question is, what will happen? Because in that context, what you see is that the people begin to pray earnestly to the Lord. This chapter five, or this verse five rather. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The only other place that Luke speaks of prayer like this is Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. They pray. Don't miss the context in these verses. The context of Passover, followed by a week of the festival of unleavened bread. This story has a context for a reason. And again, the argument is that Jesus sets his church free from tyranny that we might bear witness to him. But I want you to see that the powerless people, the church, the church in this first generation, prays earnestly. Powerless people pray. You know, the opposite is true as well. Prayerless people believe that they have all the power and don't need anything. The second part of this story starts in verses 6 through 17. And I want you to see that this is where the real king Jesus, notice that it says Herod the king, and, and that was true of Herod Agrippa. He, when he had taken over from his uncle, who was a tetrarch, one of four, he was given by Claudius all of the land. And so he was in charge of all of it. And so he was rightly the king. But I want you to see here that the real king sets Peter and the church free by sending an angel to rescue him. This is verses 6 through 17. You can read this. The thing that's amazing is this Passover imagery gets stronger and stronger in this. You remember the Passover when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt by the hand of God, set free from their oppressor, the, the, the tyrant Pharaoh, set free and delivered and rescued from him. 
the first thing that we see right down here is that an angel of the Lord shows up and it says that he strikes Peter on the side. Again, the only other time that Luke has used this in the Gospel of Acts is when he describes the, 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 uh, the plagues with which God struck the, the Egyptians in Stephen's sermon. And then when you go back and you read the story of the plagues in Exodus, over and over and over, the same imagery of being struck. Like in the Passover when the people were prepared to leave with haste, the angel of the Lord comes to Peter and he says, get up quickly, make haste, let's go. And then we read this story about he's dressed and he is ushered out and he goes past the centuries and it says that he goes into the gate and the gate of its own self opens up, not dissimilar from the Red Sea. And there he's left. And Peter comes to himself in verse 11 and he says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. You know, when Moses proclaimed that he and God's people, the Israelites, had been rescued by God's hand, he named his son Eleazar to proclaim and to remember, God has rescued me by his angel is what he says in Exodus 18. And here we see Peter almost saying those same words, God has rescued me from Herod and from all that the Jews were expecting. And Peter, rescued, goes straight to the church, doesn't he? Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and there many were gathered together and were praying. The interesting thing is Peter meets another servant girl. <laughs> Do you remember the first time that Peter met a servant girl? Do you remember where? Outside of the high priest's home when he tried to warm himself by the fire, but a servant girl goes, I know you, I know you. And can you imagine what Peter must have been thinking when he stood on the outside of a gate that didn't open to him and the servant girl comes up and she recognizes that it's Peter's voice. And yet in her joy, she runs back to the people. <laughs> she doesn't even open the door. Here we see a church gathered in prayer and yet filled with unbelief and fear, right? A church who has already been baptized, we presume, who already has professed faith in Christ, who has been joined together and yet we see the residual of fear and unbelief, right? She says Peter's been released. They say there's no way Peter has been released. It can't be Peter. What were they praying? What were they praying with great earnestness? God, would you release Peter? <laughs> They're like, there's no way he's there. And she goes, I've heard his voice. And they go, no, it's just his angel. And she insists, Peter keeps knocking. Finally, someone must have gone with Rhoda and opened the door, and there's Peter. And Peter proclaims to them what God has done. Because Jesus sets his church free from tyranny that they might bear witness about him. We see Peter doing it here to the church, and then we see Peter telling the church, now you go tell James 
This isn't dead James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who is already recognized in Acts as being the leader of the church. Go tell James and the other brothers what God has done for me. Go tell them. And then Peter disappears from the scene, right? It says there in verse 17, then he departed and went to another place. We see the second thing that happens with a tyrant. The impact of a tyrant is to increase in you fear and doubt that even borders on unbelief. But what we see from Peter who had been set free and how he charges the church is what happens when God's rescue is proclaimed. When God's rescue is proclaimed. The reason that a tyrant produces in us fear and doubt is that true human authority was meant to illustrate the care and the authority of God. That's what it meant for us in the garden to subdue the earth and rule over it. That we might be vice kings, vice regents to the king of kings. But here we see the impact of a tyrant. And the last thing that I want you to see is verses 18 and following, that the tyrants don't escape. Tyrants don't escape. And in your notes, in your order of worship, I said the good news and the good news. I want to be careful. It is good news. There's a little bit of bad news and good news involved in it. And I'll get there. But I want you to see the good news first. That tyrants are always dealt with. Those whose authority is oppressive and cruel are dealt with. Here's the second of alert of a tyrant. The first is people pleasing. The second is disbelief, right? We see in verses 18 and 19 that he went and he searched for Peter, couldn't find him, examined the guards, didn't believe the guards. There's no way that this happened miraculously, that God is at work. And so what does he do? Four squads of guards, puts them all to death, kills them all, right? The second thing that we see is that this tyrant is now still filled with anger. He's frustrated in Judea, and so what does he do? He goes to Caesarea. Remember, he is the king of the Jews. He is a vassal king underneath the Romans. And his, great, his grandfather built Caesarea as, as the port, the provincial capital of Rome in the region. And he goes, I'm going down there to rule. Nothing good is happening here. And what we see is we see him act in anger. We see him force dependence of other people. We see him demand to be recognized. And all of this in two verses. Verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. These are two cities that exist just north of Caesarea, right on the coast. Cities over which he ruled because he was the king. And he was angry with them. And these people came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, who was the one who took care of all of his needs, from his food to his bedroom to everything that he would need, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
And then it says, on an appointed day, Herod put on royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, in verse 23, we see again that an angel of the Lord struck him down. Verse 23 says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the, give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. Jesus has dealt with the tyrant Herod. Do you know what's really interesting about this in its context? He's the last real Herodian king. There's one to follow him, but he's more of a figurehead than anything else. In fact, this area doesn't remain a kingdom over which Rome is empowered anymore. It just becomes a province of Rome. But with the death of Herod, the church is set free to do what it was intended to do. And so from this point forward, with the church being set free and the tyrant being dealt with, we move into chapter 13, which is the mission of the church, proclaiming the freedom that is offered in Christ. And from here on out, the church is set free to do what it was intended to do. Because as king, Jesus sets his church free from tyranny that we might bear witness to him. Not just this tyrant is always dealt with. Tyrants don't escape. The promise is made in scripture and Paul makes the promise in Philippians 2 that one day, because of all that the Lord has done in Christ, verse 10 says, therefore God who highly exalted him Christ and bestowed on Christ the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every commentator who knows this passage says, and it is not always with joy, but every tyrant will confess the name of Christ as king. Everyone. Meanwhile, meanwhile, right? We live between the time when the church was set free to go on mission. We live between the time when Peter was released from prison and the church further released from their unbelief. What about us? What about us? By the power of the Spirit, gifted by Christ, sent from the Father and the Son, Jesus continues setting us, His church, free from the tyranny of sin. We understand that to be the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Praise God, we don't live under a, a government and a regime that has a tyrant that doesn't even allow us to worship and kills us for our worship. Praise God for that. But we struggle with the world and the flesh, don't we? Don't we struggle that way? Go back and listen to those characteristics of a tyrant. A tyrant seeks to please people. A tyrant instills fear and doubt. A tyrant is filled with anger and forces dependence for peace. 
A tyrant demands to be recognized. Remind you of anybody? Remind you of anybody in your house? Let me ask you this. Remind you of anybody in your room? Does it remind you of anybody when you're alone? (laughs) You see, the tyranny of sin in the life of a human being is at its core the belief in a lie that God doesn't love us, nor does he provide for us, and he has not told us the truth. You see, here's the great thing. The church is the one who is set free from that tyranny, from that oppressive and that cruel rule and government of the lie. But even the church that is set free still struggles to believe. And this passage reminds us that Jesus sets his church free from tyranny that we might bear witness of him and who he is. This passage reminds us that the offer that is on table for us is the proclamation of the gospel, both for unbelievers. If you're here today and you have said, I've never put my faith and trust in this, I'm telling you that even if there is not a tyrant over you, sin rules in you as a tyrant. And that sin is you. It's yours. And it oppresses you because it tells you the lie and you lie to yourself that God doesn't love you and he's not going to take care of you. But you see, the gospel reminds us that that isn't true. And we as believers need to continue to hear this, that the church would be set free. It has already been prayed today that we would leave this place charged with a mission. Do you know what this mission is for the church? For us to go out and proclaim the freedom that we have in Christ. That's our mission. Our mission is to proclaim that Jesus though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but that he humbled himself and he became like one of us. That he took his very nature, our very nature on himself and that he humbled himself even to death, even death on the cross for you and me. The cursed death of the cross that we deserved so that we might be set free. And why did he do that? Because God loves us. That the very fountain and the spring of God's love isn't bought for us by Christ, but existed in the heart of God that led him to send his son. It's a big deal. And it's a big difference that you and I would have confidence that the Father loves us. That the hold of tyranny, of sin would be broken in our lives and our beings because we know the Father loves us. Here's the amazing thing. The church from this point onward expands and expands and expands all the way to the point that you all have put your faith and your trust in Christ. It's because our King Jesus sets his church free from tyranny that we might bear witness to him. 
One of my favorite things to do is to come to your parties. It's to come to your homes when you have friends from your neighborhood and your life in your presence. And the question that I have for you is do we proclaim the freedom that we have been given in Christ? We've been set free from the tyranny of cruel and oppressive lies of the Father. And all we have to do is look at Christ who has been exalted to the right hand of God, who has been given the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue in heaven on earth will proclaim him. Every knee will bow. And our mission, the church's mission, is to bear witness to that freedom. In some senses, it's that easy. In another sense, it's that challenging that weekly we need to come to this table. This table that meets powerless people and reminds us that no, sin does not dominate our lives anymore. We have been given the Spirit of Christ. And as Paul says to the Romans, if the Father has given you His Son, how much more will He give you everything that you need? Let's pray.